Welcome to the second part of the Women in Leadership podcast, discussing the recently announced decision by the Highway Community Shepherds team to grant men and women equal access to all church leadership positions. In this second part, we will discuss biblical interpretation. Joining us will be our lead pastor, Dean Smith, to walk us through some of the key verses that helped make this decision. The Bible has a central role in the life of the highway community. The Bible is our guide for faith and practice, and it is our commitment to Scripture that brought us to address gender roles in the church. And proper interpretation approaches Scripture as a grand narrative through the New and Old Testaments, interpreting individual passages with the broader context in mind. In the gender roles process, we examine key passages with bearing on the issue. We approach these with an open mind, asking the Holy Spirit to guide us. The first portion of Scripture we examine in our study is Genesis 1 and 2. Now, Genesis is foundational to all of Scripture. This book provides the creation story, the story of sin and the fall, and the beginning of God's redemptive plan. We began our study with the passages on the creation of the world and mankind in Genesis 1 and 2. The interpretation of these passages is critical to understanding gender roles. Genesis 1 reveals that men and women were created equally as co-laborers, partners in embodying the image of God. In Genesis 1, 26, 27, it reads, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, both male and female were created equally in the image of God. There's no hierarchy of roles. Men and women have equal dignity and responsibility for the mission of God. Genesis 2 looks into the details of Genesis 1. Adam was created before Eve from Adam's rib. The Hebrew term for rib is an architectural term, better translated, side. In essence, God created an earth creature from dust and cracked it in two, creating corresponding halves, male and female. This was God's answer for a suitable helper for Adam. The term translated suitable helper, yazar in Hebrew, is used of God himself. The word means a strong one who stands alongside. So this isn't a sidekick. Eve's creation completed God's design for mankind, man and woman, two together, working side by side, each with equal value and purpose. Next, we looked at Genesis 3. The fall of mankind brought frustration to God's creation and corrupted the proper, peaceful relating of male and female. The ground would now fight Adam before giving its produce, and Eve will will long for the kind of relationship she had with Adam at the beginning, but he will dominate her. The subjugation by Adam of Eve was a result of the fall. God never desired this. Sin broke God's design. The conditions of this damaged world were the result of sin. The rest of Scripture is the story of God's restoration of the fallout from the fall. We see a vision of God's original intention in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There it says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
equal standing before God, equal access to God. However, a common interpretation of Genesis established a grid whereby God relates to women through men. And this passage was a key one for me personally in this process. Why must God relate to women through men? If a woman has no husband, who must God work through? Why must a woman have this covering from a man? Now, truly, I cover my wife, Diane, but she covers me as well. That is the nature of a marital relationship. But God is the ultimate cover of us both. God's original creation was an equal partnership, which was broken at the fall. And throughout history, God worked through women, Eve, Deborah, Ruth, Esther, Rahab, just to name a few. Properly read, Scripture lifted the status of women from objects of desire or the possessions of men to co-laborers with men in building the kingdom of God. Next, we examined how Jesus related to women uh, throughout his ministry as evidenced in the gospel stories. Jesus, the embodiment of the kingdom, revealed the role women play in his kingdom. Women played a significant part in the story of Jesus, which was revolutionary in his cultural context, to say the least. Women in New Testament times lived their lives in the shadows. It was a sin to teach a woman to read. It was illegal to teach a woman the law. Two women equaled one man's testimony in court. And rabbis in that day did not speak directly to women. The Gospels reveal Jesus' direct relationship and concern for women, welcoming them to function fully as his followers. Examples of women to whom Jesus spoke included the woman at the well, Mary Magdalene, the woman caught in adultery, Peter's mother, the woman with the issue of blood, the women at the tomb, just to name a few. Women were often primary characters in parables he taught. Jesus referred to them as sisters. There are four women in Jesus' genealogy. And Jesus allowed women to travel with him. Women had a place of privilege. The first Samaritan and Gentile converts were women. Women were the first to the tomb and the first to see the resurrected Lord. The desire for power and authority had no place in Jesus' kingdom. That all belonged to men. And throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he challenged the dominance of men over women welcoming them as full players in life and ministry. In the New Testament scriptures, we looked at the role of women in the church. Now, at Pentecost, the initiation of the church, when the Spirit fell in tongues of fire, women were in the room. Pentecost was gender neutral. Men and women received the Spirit equally. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 read, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Men and women were equally empowered in the new community. It's documented that Jewish men prayed, thanking God, that they were not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In Galatians chapter 3, 28, which we've already referenced, we see a direct refutation of that prayer. Again, it reads, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in one sentence, Paul elevated the status of each. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, historian Rodney Stark produces impressive evidence that 
quote-unquote, Christianity was unusually appealing to pagan women because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large. He shows that Christianity recognized women as equal to men, children of God with the same supernatural destiny. And moreover, the Christian moral code, the prohibition against polygamy, divorce, abortion, infanticide, and so forth, contributed to the well-being of women, changing their status from powerless serfs dominated by men to women with dignity and rights in both the church and the state. Women filled leadership roles as deaconesses, apostles, and teachers in the early church. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul commends Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centrea. He gives a shout out to Priscilla and Aquila, a ministry couple supporting him in instructing new converts like Apollos in the Christian faith. And the implication from Acts is that Priscilla took the lead role as teacher. Women opened their homes, prophesied, taught, and corrected men and women. In Romans chapter 16, verse 7, Paul sends greetings to Andronicus and Junia, fellow Jews who had suffered to spread the gospel. Andronicus is a male name, Junia female. Paul commends these two as outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was, he says. Paul mentions other women as well, Mary, Trophina, Trophosa, and Persis, who had worked hard in the work of the Lord. In Ephesians 5, when Paul revised household codes according to the way of Christ, there is reciprocity, not hierarchy. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul goes on to reveal what this looks like in marriage, with a husband filling the Christ role of sacrifice and submission to his wife's needs, and wives responding accordingly, a pattern of love and respect in a Christian marriage. William Webb, author of Women, Slaves, and Homosexuals, importantly argues that when we compare Scripture to what we know of the cultures in which it was written, it is always progressive in the issues of slavery and women. That is, Scripture consistently calls the culture to raise the dignity, status, and role of women and slaves. There's an ultimate ethic and redemptive arc of freedom and equality. This is the norm for Christ followers, a norm which reflected God's original intentions in creating mankind. Men and women together, working alongside each other, halves to the whole, without shame or domination. This is the tone set for the way God's people live in today's fallen world. Now, there are a number of disputed New Testament passages that bear on this issue. They address the role of women, and they have been subjects of debate from the inception of the church. Their influence in the life of the church has been enormous, even though the interpretation of these passages have been disputed for centuries. Paul's letters were written to address particular situations in particular churches, uh, but with broader application to the church at large. Unfortunately, these passages are not clear. The cookies are not on the lower shelf with these. Uh, we must dig deeper into the text and context, then zoom out into the larger narrative of Scripture. The first that we looked at was 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. This passage addresses appropriate behavior in church worship services, referencing head coverings for women as a sign of submission and modesty, and at the heart of the matter is the issue of honoring or dishonoring God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 and following, it says, 
I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Although commentators have found Paul's argument in this passage notoriously difficult to follow, the thrust of it can be summarized as follows. In context, the question is the manner in which men and women are to pray and engage in prophetic speech, that is, with heads covered or uncovered. Paul's answer is that they do so in a way that reflects gender distinctions in the created order, that respects the social conventions of the day, and that conforms to church practice everywhere. More broadly, Paul's teaching constitutes an affirmation of women's participation in the public prayers and prophetic ministry of the church. Worship must bring honor to God. If practices or appearances generally considered shameful are part of worship, they become distractions to the honor that was intended for God. Orderliness and propriety were therefore important. Consequently, society's conventions concerning public speech and appearance were enjoined upon the Corinthians in order to avoid public criticism. Conduct considered disgraceful hinders the effectiveness of the gospel. The issue here isn't authority, it's honor. The point of 1 Corinthians 11 is that women are not to bring shame on themselves, on their husbands, or on the church. They're to give honor as honor is due, and above all, worship must bring glory to God. A discussion often centers on the meaning of head, uh, which may be interpreted boss or source. Some see this as authority, uh, that men are in authority over women. But in most Greek texts, the term kephale, the Greek term kephale, is used as source, uh, the beginning, the headwaters. And Paul is speaking of the order of creation. Christ is the source of mankind. Woman comes from man. God is the source of Christ in the incarnation. And the point of the passage is respecting the source, not a hierarchy of authority. Next, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. In 1 Corinthians 14, addresses order in the church. It begins with the instruction that women should remain silent in churches, which is often misunderstood. In 1 Corinthians 14.34, it says, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. Now, the way some sought to apply this has been curious to me. I mean, really, women should remain silent. Can they sing in the choir or read scripture or give announcements, or heaven forbid, preach a sermon? And this interpretation is particularly difficult since earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul gave instructions on women prophesying in church. 
In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives instructions on women praying in public. Now, Paul was seeking to bring order to worship by regulating prophetic utterances and public prayers. Uh, He wasn't seeking to deny women their role. Most likely, in 1 Corinthians 14.34, Paul is quoting someone attempting to return churches to synagogue rule, where women had no role in worship. The statement should be in quotes. Some say women should be silent in churches. Now, there's confusion how best to understand 1 Corinthians 14.35. It reads thus, If they want to inquire about something, speaking of women, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Now, in the early church, church services mirrored synagogue services, with women sitting in the back and men sitting up front. Men would converse with each other on the passages with their backs to women, making it difficult for them to hear. And as a result, the women were shut out and would start discussing amongst themselves. And on top of that, women were barred from theological studies. Their husbands were better trained. So Paul says, don't disrupt the service. Talk with your husband. It was a question of order. This passage champions participation for everyone just so long as they participate in an orderly manner. This wasn't about shutting women out. It was about protecting the Christian community. And the Christian church wasn't like the orgiastic secret cults that undermined public order and decency. Paul's not writing to impose an arbitrary, permanent restriction on women's ministry. He's appealing to women to submit their power and authority to accommodate the contemporary standards of decency for the good of the spread of the gospel. Next, 1 Timothy 2 verses 11 through 15. Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, which struggled with false teachers. Women in the wider culture were never teachers and rarely learners. Paul promotes the appropriate posture for learners, which is submission. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, it says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the first deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. The verb translated assume authority, in Greek it's authentane. It's it's a difficult word to translate. It occurs only once in the Bible. In classical Greek, it came to mean to domineer or or usurp. Uh, or to exercise authority over. The question becomes, are women being cautioned not to abuse their authority or informed that they have no authority over men at all? In other words, do women have legitimate authority and power? And if so, the injunction cautions against the domineering use of it. If not, they need to take a seat and be quiet. And if that is the case, how do we understand this in light of women's prophetic and teaching ministry described in other passages of Scripture? Now, most commentators see a special situation in Ephesus. Certain women were seeking to teach without first being quiet and learning about their faith. The New Testament is clear that everyone in worship should be silent in the presence of those speaking the Word of God, men and women alike. This passage is talking about silence and submission in the presence of authoritative teaching and teachers. And one can understand why high-status Gentile women in Ephesus might think they could immediately teach in their new chosen religion. The question remains whether this is a prohibition from teaching totally. 
In Galatians 3, Paul removed distinctions. In Colossians, he exhorted all believers to teach each other. In Titus, he gave directions to women teachers. And women could be prophets and apostles, but not teachers. The third one? On the other hand, it makes sense that Paul prohibits women from teaching in Ephesus, given the confusion about the role of women there. Ephesus was saturated with goddess cults that practiced ritual prostitution, most significantly the cult of Diana with its magnificent temple. The injunction is in the present tense. Paul says, I am not permitting a woman to teach now. It seems to be peculiar to the situation, but ultimately is unclear, as is Paul's comment that women will be saved through childbearing. Was Paul's point that women should stop trying to teach and just stick to having babies? Well, maybe more women in Ephesus needed to do that, uh, but we would not generalize this to all churches in all times. 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3 lists qualifications for an episkopos, an overseer, uh, someone who takes care of or guards someone else. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, uh, we find these qualifications for uh, elders or overseers. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of respect. And if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, uh, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Purely masculine terms are used here uh, from a masculine perspective as reflected in husband of one wife. The masculine terminology is expected in that most, if not all, serving in this office were men. And Greek uh, regularly uses masculine gender uh, for mixed groups. And as far as the masculine perspective, husband of one wife, it does not require the candidate to be male any more than it requires him to be be married. Uh, The point is that polygamy was unacceptable. And even if Paul had meant specifically to include women, this would not have been worded differently uh, because polyandry, as it's called, a woman having multiple husbands, was not a social alternative. Further in this passage, Paul addresses qualifications for male deacons And in verse 11, he breaks in with instructions for women deacons. In 1 Timothy 3.11, it says, In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. The passage affirms that women are expected to maintain the same high standards of conduct as their male counterparts. Finally, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. This verse says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. This and other passages clearly imply that there is and should be an authority structure within the church. Christ is the head of the church, and overseers lead the church. Men and women may be in authority over each other depending on their leadership role in the church. So in other words, We do not believe that women are restricted to being under men's authority. And this is important 
because the task of the church is to heal the broken places that resulted from the fall and to live out in the world as best we can God's initial desires for the world. One of these broken places is inequality between men and women. We believe that the best way to move forward is with men and women side by side, serving together according to their calling and gifts, not gender. <laughs>